So welcome to Waco Watch. This is a special version of Waco Watch here. Uh, is Mike Tomasulo from Winston and Strawn. And with me is Dr. Alan Cox, who works uh, with Nira Economic Consulting. He's an economist specializing in providing expert testimony in both antitrust and IP matters. So we're going to talk about the Intel VLSI case. So welcome, Alan. Hi, very much. thanks very much. Great to be here. And so, Alan, you wrote an article recently, which was uh, published on Patent Leo, I think, uh, and it was also I, I promoted it on LinkedIn, talking about your assessment of the damages uh, aspects of the VLSI $2.2 billion verdict, yeah? That's right. Though I'd say it's more of a, a just a description of what went down in, in terms of damage testimony. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, well, for our listeners, let's reset the case briefly. This we're talking about the VLSI versus Intel, the first trial where there was two asserted patents that were carried to trial before Judge Albright. It's the first of three trials, and that trial, which was concluded in February, resulted in a finding of infringement on both of the asserted patents and a jury verdict of two point two billion dollars, which was more or less the exact number that um, was blackboarded by the VLSI damages expert, Dr. Ryan Sullivan, right? That's correct. So a lot of the evidence in this case remains under seal. So with that in mind, we could say this. What we do know is that VLSI relied on something called a hedonic regression to calculate its damages demand. And we do know that a hedonic Regression has been used with some frequency in antitrust cases, but as far as we could see, it's never been successfully used to determine a reasonable royalty in a patent case. So, Dr. Cox, let me start with this. At a very high level, what is hedonic regression, and how, at a you know very high level, did VLSI use hedonic regression in its damages theory? Uh, sure. Well, a, a regression, just a normal regression, is a statistical procedure that allows you to look at the impact of several variables, independent variables, uh, on a dependent variable that you might be interested in. So in the case of a hedonic relationship, it measures the impact of different characteristics of products uh, on the prices of those products. Uh, so it basically explains differences in the price of a particular good by looking at different uh, different attributes of those goods. Is is it common or have you seen hedonic regression used in in antitrust or other areas of litigation? Well, in, in litigation, I think it's been used several times and possibly quite a lot in, in antitrust matters uh, where you're basically trying to show the impact, if any, of an alleged conspiracy, for instance. Uh, and hedonics uh, has actually been around for a few decades uh, and is particularly heavily used by the government uh, in correcting the uh, producer price index, for instance, to take into account uh, the improved performance, particularly of computers. Uh, but it hasn't been used uh, that often in litigation uh, and certainly not, hardly at all in, uh, in intellectual property matters. Yeah, the couple cases I saw, uh, there, it had never gotten all the way to the finish line in one case, the judge seemed to suggest that it was an acceptable theory, but it had been applied incorrectly. Um, so, I mean, with that in mind, you know, I guess the the concept is it, it the tries to measure the relationship between the 
the various, or at least in this case, VLSI tried to use it to measure the relationship between various microprocessor characteristics and the price Intel was able to charge for those microprocessors. Is, is that about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. What do they do with that information? Uh, what they did with that information was uh, they took the information about the uh, relationship between price and speed and were able to map that increase in speed to the characteristics of the patents or the performance Im uh, improvement that is due to the patent uh, and that way ultimately determine a final damage number. My understanding was, based on what you're saying in my, my attendance in the trial, is that the VLSI said that these patents increase speed and performance or, or speed and they increase speed and reduce power consumption, but they identified performance improvement aspects that, that were supposedly enabled by the patents. And then I guess what you're saying is they did a hedonic regression to try to value those alleged performance improvements. That's, that's correct. That's, that's a fair way to characterize it. And then Dr. Sullivan basically said, well, based on my hedonic regression and some testing performed, I've been able to quantify the alleged extra profits that Intel enjoyed by virtue of its alleged infringement. Is that about right? That's right. That's, that's a good summary. And then what, so now he gets this pile of dollars that he says that Intel gained by virtue of the alleged infringement. So then how does he use that at the hypothetical negotiation to determine a reasonable royalty? Uh, basically, he uses uh, something I've never actually seen anybody use before in a hypothetical negotiation, and that is basically to take uh, the sum of Intel's operating costs and divide that by the uh, Intel's total revenue and use that percentage uh, as a portion of those benefits that we discussed a moment ago uh, that would go to Intel. And so the net net of that, so he comes up with a big number, three or four, I guess, he comes up with a number of about $3 billion, give or take. And then he says the two parties at the hypothetical negotiation would have been the patent owner at that time, which was Freescale free Semiconductor and, and Intel. And then he says, based on, you know, my view of the world and my analysis, Freescale would have taken about three quarters of that $3 billion, and that gets you to the $2.2 billion number. Yes, that's right. So I guess I th I, maybe we could sort of cover a couple of things. Let's get a little bit more wonky about how they did this. And then at the end, maybe we can talk about, you know, is this, uh, where, what, what, what do we see happening next? And where do we, you know, do, do we expect to see more hedonic regression or is this a unique opportunity for a plaintiff to apply it? Um, so let's, let, what are some of the key steps that VLSI, it took a lot of experts for VLSI to put this together, right? They had Dr. Sullivan, they had a guy from USC, the Dr. Anavaram, and then they had their infringement expert, Dr. Conti, to name just a few. Right. Yeah, they had two two uh, technical experts, and then uh, Dr. Sullivan, who was their economic expert, who actually did the hedonic analysis. 
you know, just from a, you know, as, as, as uh, Intel's lawyers pointed out, if any of these people made a mistake, then the, the whole thing kind of falls apart, or at least it changes the result. So let's talk about step one, the hedonic regression to determine a ratio or a coefficient that shows the relationship between um, the price or the speed between price and speed. So in other words, they're saying VLSI says my patents increased the speed of your microprocessors, Intel, and Dr. Sullivan is going to determine how much that benefited you. And the first step is a, is a hedonic regression. Yeah, yeah, I would put it slightly differently. Basically, what Dr. Sullivan did was he had a bunch of variables that he could measure, uh, one of which was the speed of the microprocessor. And he was able to show the relationship between the speed of a microprocessor and the price that Intel was able to charge for those microprocessors. And did we get a sense of how he could do that? I mean, I, I guess, like, I in the abstract, I can understand that, you know, um, there's going to be features of any product or service, and some of them may drive demand more than others. You know, you have real estate, you have location, location, location. Um, but do we get a sense of how he could break it down to an actual number and say, you know, the speed is you know, uh, speed is valued by Intel's customers at, uh, you know, a three decimal, you know, level accuracy. Well, sure. And this is just a statistical process of taking a whole lot of data uh, and uh, figuring out how, if one particular variable changes, uh, how much the dependent variable changes, holding all the other variables constant. Uh, so you could imagine, for instance, just having uh, data on price and speed, uh, you could easily just plot out a relationship uh, between those two variables in, on a graph paper. And what the hedonic regression does is it takes into account the impact uh, of a whole lot of other variables. And is is this something that could be done by a survey or did, did he use a survey or how did he get the data to allow him to make his conclusions? Well, that wasn't exactly clear from the, the testimony that I heard. Uh, but he seemed to have access to a database where all of this information was compiled, prices for various microprocessors and the, uh, and the characteristics of those processors. So he seemed, you cut out there for a second, but you, I think what you said is he seemed to have access to some significant database that allowed him to you know, crunch the numbers and come up with his, uh, his results. That's correct, yeah. And so ultimately, what what did he conclude was the relationship between price and speed? Did he re he reached a number? I guess. Yeah, he had a very specific number, and this is this is one of the things that was clear from his testimony. Uh, he found that if a Intel microprocessor increased in speed by one percent, then the price of that microprocessor would increase by 0764 percent. Uh, or to put it in slightly bigger terms, if there was a 10% increase in speed, Intel could charge 7.64% more for that processor. Got it. So, so that's his coefficient or um, ratio. That that that's the hedonic regression aspect of things, right? Right. And then he. VLSI used a professor from U University of Southern California, which is my law school alma mater, I will say that. Um, professor Anavaram, he ran some tests using Intel's own benchmarking tools. And 
Can you talk a little bit about what you could discern? What 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 is it that Anavar, Professor Anavaram was was tasked with doing, and how did that play into the damages model? Yeah, well, I didn't actually hear Professor Anavaram's testimony, but according to Sullivan, what Anavaram told him and what Anavaram had testified was uh, that the three seventy the three seven three patent um, uh, decreased power consumption by five point four five percent. Uh, whereas the 759 patent uh, increased microprocessor performance, whatever that means, by 1.1%. So, yeah, I, I actually did listen to Anavaram's testimony. It was interesting because he, some, I guess he was able to obtain access through discovery of Intel's own benchmarking tools, which are very complicated, um, you know, emu emulators, I suppose. And... So then he, you know, supposedly tested the um, some of the accused products using a configuration that, you know, supposedly included the infringing technology or the allegedly infringing technology and some alternative configuration that didn't, and that's how he generated those numbers. So again, one issue with all of this is if Doctor Anavaram is wrong or if his testimony is no good altogether, then the whole thing falls apart, I suppose. Yeah, that that that's certainly correct. Though, you know, arguably, uh, Dr. Sullivan has given the jury uh, or any trier of fact enough information uh, to take any of those percentages and, and convert them into a price change. What, whatever, yeah, whatever the correct number should be. Right. Um, and then, so they also relied on Professor Conti, and he said that I guess he tried to translate the um, Dr. Anavaram's results into the language of the price reg or the price regression or the hedonic analysis. Is that right? Well, that that's a pretty fair way of uh, describing what I think happened, yes. So he, Dr. Conti says, well, a 1% improvement in the area of power consumption or a 1% improvement an increase in performance could be valued the same as a 1% increase in speed. Yeah, that's what I heard Dr. Sullivan say about what Dr. Conti told him. And then, so that again, that's one other leg of the table that if it, if that's not sustained, then, you know, that's, that's another area, I suppose, for Intel to challenge. Um, okay. So now we, we get this uh, for, so far we have the idea that, Dr. Sullivan has been able to, according to him, come up with a measurement that says, you know, if you increase the performance or the speed of the microprocessor, you increase the speed of the microprocessor by 1%, you get a 0.764 increase in the price of it. And then Dr. Anavaram and Dr. Conti collectively testify about, you know, what the accused infringing technology, so the performance benefits that were supposedly derived from that. Now, what does Dr. Sullivan do with all of this? Uh, well, uh, basically, he's, now he's got all the pieces that he needs to at least come up with the total amount of money uh, that uh, Intel earned, uh, or a total increase in revenue, rather, that Intel received as a result of implementing the patents, according to the plaintiff's case. And basically, all he needs, all he had to do was take that. 0.764 number uh, and multiply that by the percentage increases in performance uh, and the percentage 
improvement in power consumption. Uh, and the, that, uh, the, that product uh, gives you the total amount of revenue that Intel received uh, as a result of utilizing the patented technology. So he says uh, 1% in, increase in performance gets you a 0.764 increase in price, and Dr. Anavaram and Dr. Conti have told me that you, you're going to get an increase of 5.45%, so I multiply my 0.764 times that, and then I take that, and I multiply it by the very large number of accused sales for Intel, and that gets me a very large number. That's right. That's right. I think it was about three billion dollars. Right. So he then. So now he says, um, "Well, Intel's alleged infringement has led to a giant pile of three billion dollars of extra profits." And so the parties would have known about this extra pile of three billion dollars of extra profits by virtue of the Book of Wisdom. That the at the hypothetical negotiation, which would have been between Freescale on the one hand and Intel on the other, five, six, seven years ago, however long ago, the alleged first infringement occurred. So they're at this hypothetical negotiation, and BLSI's uh, demonstrative basically showed a table with a giant pile of cash uh, on it, and that was basically their thesis: was that there was all this extra money generated by the alleged infringement, and now it's time to divvy that extra money up at the hypothetical negotiation. Right. And so That's how does, right. and so how does Dr. Sullivan, what, what does he do next? So he says there's a big pile of money sitting on the table, Freescale, the original patent owner or the, the patent owner at the, at the pertinent time, uh, wants some of it and Intel wants some of it. And, and then now what happens? Uh, well, he, Dr. Sullivan did something that was a little bit unusual in my view. Uh, and that is, he said that Intel's contribution uh, or the proportion that, of this big pile of money that Intel should receive is related to its operating costs. Uh, and what he did was is he took Intel's total operating costs over the relevant period and divided it by the total revenue, its total revenue during that same period. Uh, and he came up with a number of around uh, 25%, I think it was. Uh, and he said... That 25% represents Intel's contribution to getting this pile of money, uh, and Intel would get to keep that pile of money uh, for itself, uh, or it would negotiate that, uh, that proportion of the pile of money for itself at the hypothetical negotiation. So, so then Freescale supposedly gets to sweep $2.2 billion out of the alleged $3 billion and says we get to keep the 2.2, and you get to keep about a quarter of that because – Generally speaking, when Intel does its own thing, it it you know it basically um, it gets its its return its contribution is twenty five percent. I guess that's how he comes up with that. That that's correct. Though arguably, uh, what he's doing is he's not leaving Intel with any money because, by his argument, uh, Intel had to pay that money in order to uh get that uh to make that contribution to the successful to the success of these microprocessors so i mean we we get um we get now we've got and this was something that was certainly made clear by uh at trial by intel's lawyers i mean you have a lot of a lot of legs holding up this table um and if any one of them goes at least the damages model 
that was testified to the numbers incorrect, you know, whether that tosses the whole thing out or, or not, you know, I suppose that's a conversation for another day, but you have is, was the hedonic regression done correctly? Was Dr. Anavaram and Dr. Conti's inputs to this formula done correctly? Uh, and was it reasonable to divvy it up the way they did? So there's at least four major components of it where where so you could see i suppose we'll see attacks on at least some of those in the post-trial briefing and at the federal circuit yeah that's right i mean uh, the regression analysis uh may have had uh, a, a lot of uh, issues with it uh it may have been that um, uh, there were certain variables missing um certain choices of data inputs that uh uh, if uh, a different choice had been made, the result might be quite different. Uh, we don't even know uh, from listening to the trial what prices were used. I mean, were they uh, prices that uh, are listed or were they the prices people actually paid? Did they take into account uh, bulk discounts uh, and returns? We, we don't know any of that information from what we've seen in the record so far, but uh, they are certainly serious issues uh, that uh, – that may or may not have been adequately raised to uh, be a, an effective, uh, effective um, basis for uh, a reversal or a challenge to the uh, to the result. Now, Dr. Cox, one thing I think you and I were both kind of, I would say, caught off guard by was it seemed to me that what Dr. Sullivan was saying is that there's really no such thing as a as a comparable license, and what he he said. You know, that I think he said um, that I guess by the virtue of the way the hypothetical negotiation is set up, there can't really be a comparable license uh, or it will be very rare. Can you, he, I guess he used this cards up analogy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, he did say that the difference between a real world negotiation, uh, which resulted in these uh otherwise comparable licenses, certainly the comparable licenses that Intel identified, the difference between those comparable li those licenses in the real world and the hypothetical negotiation is that the negotiators would be playing, as he put it, with their, they would be negotiating with the cards facing up, uh, that they would have a great understanding of, uh, everybody would have an exact understanding of how Intel was going to use uh, the technology. Uh, and he implied, though it wasn't entirely clear, uh, that he that in, that both parties would know the success that the uh, these microprocessors would have in the market. Um, he was sort of looking at after the fact. He may have been looking at after the fact information uh, that would allow him to make the claim that uh, comparable licenses are are, are in fact or so allegedly comparable licenses are not in fact not comparable. Yeah, that, that that is the way of doing business these days, I guess. For certainly for plaintiffs' experts, as this book of wisdom, you will you know you feel free to use all of this data that that um, you know really would not have been available at the hypothetical negotiation. You just view the whole body of work, and that's what he had said was, look, you you know you would uh, you wouldn't value Tom Brady based on his draft position. You value Tom Brady at the end of his career based on his body of work, and you know I, I just. Again, I'm the it's part of the Georgia Pacific factors is comparable licenses, and and he just said 
you know, really doesn't matter. So it's, you know, again, I would say another uh, aspect of um, his testimony that will probably be a tax on appeal. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of debate on this, but my view is that the, the appropriate view is the expectations uh, of parties at the time of the hypothetical negotiation. Uh, and, you know, if there's document, there may be documentary evidence that Intel knew exactly uh, how well it, uh, the product was going to be was, was going to do, and that uh, that anybody who was negotiating with them would have some idea of what how well uh, people were going to to do. Uh, and um, uh, but it, it sounds more like, uh, as I said, that uh, they were uh, BLSI was relying uh, fairly heavily on after the fact information. Yeah, that was my sense of it. Um, I mean, in fact, I think that's what he said, right? It's like it's a cards up negotiation and you, you know, the, the Tom Brady analogy is you, you don't, it's, you know, the, the hypothetical negotiation is really Tom, Tom Brady being drafted at the end of his career. Yeah, that, opposed... that's, a, that's a very fair point. I mean, uh, when he came up with that analogy, I think he made it very clear, uh, or VLS has made it very clear that they were talking about after the fact information. Yeah, they just said you know you're not you don't value the value of Tom Brady is not his draft pick. It's basically is where would you have drafted him if you knew what exactly he was going to accomplish. Um, so where do we go now? I guess you know from a nuts and bolts standpoint, we'll see a test of these damages theories in the J Mall in front of Judge Albright, and then um, you know unless the case were to to settle, I suppose it probably makes its way up to the federal circuit at some point. Um, do you do you expect to see more of this uh, type of analysis? I mean, I, on the one hand, they got a big number. On the other hand, we've identified four or five things that if you don't do just quite right, you know, your whole your whole damages model may be cooked. Um, was there something special or unique about this case that lent it to it? Uh, well, as I said, I think that uh, there was something unique about this case in that uh, there's a lot of data available. Um, uh, you know, often when we don't have data, uh, we go out and do surveys. Uh, and certainly, survey testimony has been uh, used and accepted uh, by by courts. Uh, I would expect that we see uh, hedonic analysis done, uh, particularly in the high tech area, um, where where this data tends to be more available. We will tend to see it more and more. Um, but um, uh, uh, Hopefully, uh, it'll be uh, a little bit more carefully examined uh, than it appears to have been uh, in this case. Though I make that statement again without very much knowledge about you know, what happened in the pretrial proceedings, um, because I don't know because that pro that stuff is already is still sealed. Well, you know. This has been a, a very interesting conversation from my perspective, and I want to thank you for coming on to Waco Watch. Um, you know, we've had a good time covering the judge's first two trials, and we're going to be down in Waco again in about a week and a half or two weeks for the second installment of the VLSI uh, Intel trial. And, you know, we'll be looking forward to hearing from your views, and I really appreciate you taking the time and helping us, you know, stepping us through what happened here at the, uh, as far as the VLSI damages case. Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure being here. I really love your podcast. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, so this is uh, Michael Tomasulo from Winston & Strawn, 
And Dr. Alan Cox signing off for now. Take care and we'll be back soon.